Major leadership changes are coming to Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's administration. Public Education Secretary Kurt Steinhaus is leaving the position, and so is the doctor who helped guide us through the pandemic, Human Services Secretary David Scrace. Both announced their retirement from state government. And listen, we know it's a tough job. Perhaps the most well-known public administrator, Human Services Secretary Dr. David Scrace, also announced plans to step down and retire from state government in late February. Dr. Scrace became the face of the pandemic, not only for the Human Services Department, but he also took on the Department of Health in the middle of its own transition, following the departure of Secretaries Kathy Kunkel and Dr. Tracy Collins. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced in December Patrick Allen would take over the Department of Health. I'm Damian Willis, and this is the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to Patrick Allen, Cabinet Secretary of the New Mexico Department of Health. At the end of 2022, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham appointed Allen as the leader of the state's health department following the resignation of Dr. David Scrace. Allen began his work in the department on January 3rd. Before coming to New Mexico, Allen worked as the director of the Oregon Health Authority. In Oregon, he led the agency's response to COVID-19 and guided Oregon's statewide Medicaid plan and behavioral health system. We'll talk about his plans and priorities for the department as the COVID-19 public health orders expire. New Mexico's COVID-19 public health order expired Friday, March 31st. Meanwhile, the federal government plans to end the COVID-19 public health emergency on May 11th, 2023. This week, I'm grateful to have Secretary Allen joining us. Secretary Allen, thanks for making time to join us today. Happy to. You've been on the job a little more than three months now. What are your first impressions, both of the job and also of New Mexico? Well, I, I love New Mexico. Um, I, as you say, I, I moved down here uh, at the beginning of January. Um, uh, my wife has yet to join me. Our, she's getting our house ready to go on the market. Uh, and so uh, hopefully we'll be down here together. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's such a wonderful place. Uh, uh, we, I live in Santa Fe. The community is great, but I'm, now the session is done, I'm having a chance to get out in other parts of the state and really explore. And so uh, so I'm really enjoying that. Uh, and, and I really love the job. Um, the legislate, legislative session was um, uh, a lot shorter than what I'm used to, which, uh, uh, which was pretty exciting. Um, uh, the legislators here, here have been great to work with. Um, you know, I've, I've told a lot of people that uh, so far, it, there have been very few things that people have brought to me that I've never heard of or seen before. They look a little different here, uh, and some of the you know the players and the issues and things are 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 different. But on some level, running a health department is a little bit running a health department, and so that's been actually kind of kind of comforting as I've done the work. Um, the The challenges that are in New Mexico are um, uh, are real. Uh, and, but they're the kinds of things that I feel like I've got some uh, some skills to bring to, and uh, I am I'm enjoying digging in and seeing if we can make progress. You <laughs> you started like 
two weeks, two and a half weeks before the start of the legislative session. So it really was kind of trial by fire. Yeah, a little bit, uh, um, you know, but better to be there before the session than, than to, you know, start in the middle or, or after. So we have figured uh, let's get to it. True. You mentioned the challenges. Can you speak to those a little more? Oh, well, sure. Um, you know, I think uh, the, you know, the number one factor about New Mexico that uh, that comes to the forefront of almost any issue that you deal with is is the poverty that we have in the state and how that impacts things like how many people are on Medicaid, uh, what kinds of access to health care people have, the social determinants of health, things like housing, food, jobs that have an impact on people's ability to be healthy. Those all um, are, um, you know, big challenges here. Um, yeah, culturally, uh, obviously, this is one of the most unique states in the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that provides some really exciting opportunities. And there are also some, uh, some challenges around that. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think those kinds of dynamics play out in all of the typical kinds of, of, uh, of health issues. Uh, we're a Medicaid expansion state. And yet, uh, you know, when we were outside the, the pandemic, we had a fairly high rate of people who are uninsured. People being uninsured has lots of implications for uh, for their health and health care. And, and so it goes through a variety of issues. Our state is closing a three year long chapter tonight. And as it does, you may or may not feel the impacts. After living through the ups and downs of a pandemic, New Mexico is taking a huge step in the endemic phase tonight. Our COVID public health order is ending. Tamara Lopez joins us now. Tamara, the state is moving away from those pandemic guidelines we all got so used to. That's right, Julie. Tonight, the New Mexico public health order is expiring, and unlike the dozens of other renewals, Governor Michelle Luan Grisham does not plan on renewing it this time. The state's public health order around COVID-19 expired on March 31st. Can you kind of explain to our listeners what this means on a practical level? What impacts will it have on day-to-day life? Yeah, so... Uh, so, so at midnight on March 31st, I would say not a lot changed because around that overarching order were lots of specific directions and orders and, and requirements and rules. And most of those had already gone away by the time we got to the 31st. Uh, and so really the order that went away on the 31st um, uh, took us formally out of an emergency footing and put us where we are today, which is COVID is still a serious illness. Uh, it's still a global pandemic. It's still, you know, much more lethal than influenza, for instance. Um, yeah, but it's going to be around for the long haul. And so, so we're beginning to transition into what does that world look like versus being on an emergency footing all the time, which you can't sustain indefinitely. But in terms of, you know, things going away or changing on the 31st, not much actually changed that day. And what do you anticipate that looking like? Well, so I think, um, you, you know, I think we're all hopeful and scientists, I think, are encouraged to have really seen some evidence that that COVID changes from being this thing that crops up at all times of year and hits a population that has no immunity protection, whether through past exposure or through through vaccines into something that while it's more serious than flu looks like a seasonal um, like a seasonal respiratory illness like flu and like respiratory syncytial virus 
you know, all three of which kind of ganged up on us this past, uh, this past winter. Um, and, you know, when it, it, as it begins to look like that, while it's more serious, you can do some things differently around how you protect people in long-term care facilities, how you deal with health care, um, when you push uh, uh, vaccination, you know, an, an annual uh, respiratory vaccine um, campaign become, makes a lot more sense in that kind of a dynamic. I think that's the world that we're likely moving toward. That's, that, of course, is all assuming there's not some, you know, dramatically different variant that that crops up that that could, but doesn't seem to be on the horizon right now. How are hospitals around the state responding? Well, so you saw that some of the major health systems uh, in a coordinated fashion, as they've coordinated a lot of their work, yeah. uh, are dropping their um, uh, their masking, uh, their overall masking requirement uh, at the end of this week. Uh, of course, you know, hospitals are still going to do things like wearing masks in surgery, which they always did before. And, you know, people don't remember, but lots of healthcare settings during uh, winter respiratory virus seasons often did um, uh, have mask requirements. I remember going into my doctor's office in a particularly bad flu season and and you were asked to put a mask on and your your provider had a mask on in the exam room. And so those kinds of things will still will still happen as well as providers and patients who at any time um, feel that they need the added protection of a high quality mask are always able to to be able to do that as well. But the overall requirements will go away. I want to kind of change topics now. Last week, we saw two federal judges issue contradictory rulings on Mifepristone. Um, Is that something you're watching? And if so, what could it mean for New Mexicans? Yeah, so we are watching uh, watching those cases carefully right now. uh, It appears that the status quo remains uh, in force, but that could change. Uh, you know, at, at almost any time, the federal government is in in the Texas uh, courtroom. Uh, I believe at the end of uh, at the end of this week, um, to be prepared for a potential loss of access to mefepristone, we have uh, acquired a stockpile of misoprostol, which is the other uh, the other drug um, uh, used uh, uh, to facilitate. Uh, to facilitate uh, medical abortions and can be used by itself uh, without uh, mefepristone. And so we've got uh, we've got a supply of that um, available uh, and would move to that kind of a kind of a regimen if uh, if necessary. But we're watching carefully to see what happens in those court cases. More people have suffered abuse at the hands of service providers. That's according to state officials. Today, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced a widespread investigation. As Spencer Schott reports, the state has already cut ties with four providers trusted with helping some of our state's most vulnerable. This is a state that will not tolerate abuse, neglect, and exploitation of any vulnerable populations in any context, in any way, any shape or fashion. Strong words from Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Less than two weeks after state officials announced they have terminated contracts with four service providers who help the developmentally disabled here in New Mexico. The four agencies provided service to more than 700 people here in the metro area. And concerns arose when one client suffered what state officials called severe and life-threatening injuries. We are now doing what I would refer to as more of a forensic review of the entire system. I know that 
the DOH has recently been conducting health and safety wellness checks for clients receiving services from the state's developmental disabilities or DD waiver programs. What prompted this and how's it going? Well, so what prompted it is there was a, a we became aware of, uh, of a, an initial case of, of a truly horrific abuse and neglect. Um, I'm, I'm not able to go into much detail about that because there are active uh, law enforcement investigations around that particular uh, around that particular case. But that caused us to um, review what we knew about other abuse and neglect allegations. We found several other extremely serious cases of abuse and neglect, um, uh, uh, at least three of which resulted in the deaths of uh, of the individuals who were receiving services. And that caused us to to engage in a much more global look at um, how we deliver these services and our own regulatory oversight of this work. So our um, division for developmental service uh, de- developmental uh, uh, services, um, and then our uh, division of health improvement. Those two divisions either deliver services through um, through partners or regulate that system. Uh, and that that caused us to want to make sure that that we uh, kind of did an all hands on deck approach to making sure we had eyes on everybody, that we had an opportunity to to meet with everyone receiving services through our programs and make sure they're OK, uh, make sure the services that they're receiving uh, are adequate, that they're in a, a positive living environment. Those those kinds of things. We've been able to partner with a number of other state agencies to bring people in temporarily to. Uh, to do that, we, um, uh, as of the most recent numbers I heard this morning, I think we have now visited about 5,000 of the 6,800 clients who are receiving services through a variety of programs. Um, and so I expect that we will complete those visits within the 30 days target that we had set for ourselves. Yeah. And to give our, our listeners a little more context, as of Friday at noon, those visits the, it kind of knock and talk and look around visits basically at all of these sites around the state identified 68 sites with possible concerns and your department said that every one of those incidents is being fully investigated that's correct and they and you know they and they they run quite a gamut from uh, from relatively minor but nevertheless real environmental circumstances, you know, smoke detectors or those kinds of things, um, uh, potentially up to serious abuse and neglect. And so it's hard for me to characterize how much is in what category uh, until those investigations are complete. But uh, but we are moving forward with um, uh, with that work. Was there anything that came out of this year's legislative session that is going to impact DOH that you would like to talk about? Sure. So there were there were a, a few bills um, or, or budget line items. I think um, uh, the legislature provided uh, two million dollars to create an office of uh, um, alcohol misuse prevention um, that we've never had that capability before. And so we're going to be able to stand that up. Uh, and be able to uh, be able to do that work. Uh, the legislature um, uh, codified the existence of school-based health centers. We've had school-based health centers in New Mexico for a long time. It's a very successful program. There's uh, state and federal funding that helps make sure uh, kids have access to health care where they spend the most hours um, in a day. 
uh, which is at their uh, at their school, but it, the, those never existed as a matter of state law. So now uh, now they do. Uh, and then the the legislature responded to the governor's call to create a uh, uh, health care authority uh, department. Uh, and um, uh, we and the human services department and others will be due back to the legislature in January with a plan for how to stand that up. That will affect the uh, health department um, by moving those two programs I talked about earlier, the developmental uh, services division and um, uh, health improvement divisions into the uh, into the um, the authority to help consolidate purchasing regulation and delivery of healthcare services. Can you talk a little bit more about the uh, alcohol misuse prevention and what that will look like kind of on the ground? How it's envisioned? Yeah. So the idea is we've we've had a little bit of of um, capability for an epidemiologist to do research on and look at patterns of alcohol use and misuse in the state, how those contribute to health and safety issues. Um, we have one of the one of if not the highest rate of alcohol fatalities in the country, and so we've been able to. Uh, have a little bit of capacity to analyze that data, but not much else in, in terms of being able to um, uh, uh, work with uh, work with communities on programming, identify policies that can help reduce um, alcohol misuse, uh, all that kind of work. We're going to be able to do um, much more effectively because we'll have you know human beings available in the in the agency to spend time doing that work. Excellent. What other priorities do you have, both short term and long term? Yeah, so I think the I think the biggest thing coming out of the pandemic is this is this notion of of um, kind of rebuilding our public health structures. We did the agency did a, a lot of really heroic work during the pandemic to get out and get people tested to provide vaccine, yeah. make sure was- people were able. I was just about to say that during the pandemic, it seemed like we kind of saw how well this could work if we uh, really put our minds together and make it work. That's exactly right. Uh, and uh, and if we put the resources necessary to necessary to do the work. Well, now, you know, the, those resources are going away as we move out of this emergency phase of the pandemic. And so what we really need to do is is look at our capabilities, figure out what did we learn how to do really well during the pandemic and how do we preserve that? Um, what are the new relationships that we built, the new tools that we used, those kinds of things and figure out, uh, you know, everything we learned about how to get people vaccinated for uh, for COVID equally applies to getting them vaccinated for uh, for influenza if they're if they're at risk or getting uh, getting kids their their preventive vaccines as an example and so so that's a lot of the short term work is to figure out how we how we rebuild the public health system uh, and recover a little bit from from what it's been through uh, across the country and in New Mexico huge numbers of people left the profession. And so we, you know, we've got a, we've got a very high vacancy rate in the agency. We need to build that back um, and, and figure out how, um, again, how we sort of uh, identify those, those good skills that we, that we developed and, and, and continue them. Longer term, the governor has really been, been clear about her priorities for health really revolve around access and quality. How do we make sure people have got access to a full range of, um, of, uh, of, 
health services uh, and, uh, and, and efforts. And whether that's access to alcohol and drug treatment or behavioral health services or reproductive health services, all New Mexicans uh, deserve that, that fundamental access. And we've got a lot of work to do to be able to build that to build that back. We're going to have an awful lot of people who are going to no longer be eligible for Medicaid. We had about a, a, a 10% uninsured rate prior to the pandemic that was able to get, you know, whittled down. Um, actually, I'm sorry, we're at about a, about a 10% uninsured rate now. That's likely to go up. And so how do we make sure people who aren't insured have access to, uh, to the care and support that they need? What impact does that vacancy rate among healthcare workers have on on the overall system in New Mexico? Yeah, so that vacancy rate is not just in in the Department of Health or in public health generally. That's really uh, across healthcare broadly, and I would even say across all the what I would call the caregiving industries, whether it's uh, people who work in hospitals, people in public health, long term care. Childcare, all those areas, I think, are dealing with kind of a, a workforce reckoning, where um, for many of those positions, what we've historically been willing to pay, while it's really hard for um, patients or residents or family members to be able to pay for, has not been enough to keep um, the workforce, the the skilled and committed workforce that we need, and so we're in the middle of a very painful reengineering, I think, of. Um, of all of that. So we need to think about how our jobs work um, in, in healthcare, how they're compensated, um, what working conditions are, those kinds of things. And that's all happening in the middle of a, of a, you know, a big demographic shift. For years and years, we've been talking about the baby boomers retiring and golly, they're really doing it now. And, and so, you know, we've got this demographic shift um, as that generation begins to really retire in serious numbers um, uh, that kind of make all those challenges around the workforce even tougher. And so we really need to focus on the pipeline. We need to focus on, uh, you know, kids clear down and even in middle school, getting them interested in um, science and technology, getting them interested in healthcare fields and those kinds of things and figure out how to, how to nurture that interest. And, and that, by the way, is also how we work to make sure we have a workforce that looks a lot more like the population that we serve, which is also a problem we need to solve. It seems to me that, you know, as we're seeing some of this federal COVID relief money drying up, New Mexico is really poised financially to step in and um, continue revolutionizing the healthcare system. Sure. Uh, one of the big uh, one of the big demonstrations of that uh, legislative legislative session is the uh, rural health care access um, uh, program that has has money and other tools to expand rural access to a variety of health care services. That's uh, that's going to allow New Mexico to use its money to step in uh, back to the governor's priority around access and and in places where there isn't sufficient access, be able to support you know, opening uh, opening facilities or or new lines of service or those kinds of things to make sure that wherever you are in New Mexico, you've got reasonable access to healthcare. Is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't talked about today? Boy, I think your questions uh, have been, uh, Damien, have been uh, been great. I can't think of uh, anything else to anything else to hit on. Well, thanks again, Secretary, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A special thanks goes out to Secretary Patrick Allen for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks to KOB4 in Albuquerque for the extra audio heard in this week's episode. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.